Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what is happening with the CETA deal and Ireland? We are all more interested in how trade works or should work in these post-Brexit days. But still, because big trade deals take years to negotiate, we often don't get into the nitty gritty of them until we have to. That looks to be the case when it comes to CETA, the Canadian EU trade agreement. Instead of being approved by the Houses of the Oireachtas, the deal in Ireland first took a trip to our courts after Green Party TD Patrick Costello launched a case. It eventually landed on the desks of the Supreme Court justices here. And in a decision handed down recently, those judges said it could not be ratified by the Dáil as things stand. How did we get here and where does it leave the deal? Well, there are a lot of things to unpack so we can answer those questions. And I'm delighted friend of the podcast, David Kenny, Associate Professor at Trinity College Dublin Law School, is back with us to take us through what happened and what is likely to happen next. Thanks so much for coming in, David. Pleasure, Sinead. The first question is kind of obvious and maybe basic, but what's the point of this trade deal? Yeah, so the point of CETA, the Canada-EU trade deal, like any trade deal, I suppose, is to remove barriers to trade and investment between Canada, in this case, and all the member states of the EU. And so it's a very broad agreement that's designed to remove almost all taxes, tariffs on goods coming from Canada and going to Canada from the EU, um, with very few exceptions tariffs between the, those two places will just go away. There are some restrictions in terms of agriculture and fisheries, but more or less any kind of good you can think of shipping between the two places will be done uh, without import taxes. And the idea is for that to save importers and exporters huge amounts of money and encourage them to trade between the two places. And the theory of trade deals like this is that that should increase investment. It should increase trade between the two places. It should make everyone more money because that's what trade's supposed to do. And that that should improve welfare in both places. Now, of course, whether or not that's your view of of international (laughs) trade and trade deals uh, might depend on your politics, but that's the theory. And so that's what CETA is trying to do. And it does some other things as well, like it tries to make moving between Canada and the EU easier for people with professional qualifications. It's really quite a broad economic partnership between Canada and the EU, as well as a very comprehensive trade deal. As I said, these things do take a long time to to get worked out. How long has this one been in the works? Yeah, so really, you know, you could say for a decade, long, long, long negotiations before anything was kind of put to paper now, I think almost eight years ago. And then you had a period waiting for it to, to come into force. And so even though it isn't technically ratified yet by the members of the European Union, including Ireland, and that's what we're talking about today, it is already provisionally in force. So for quite a few years now, I think five years, a lot of the uh, removal of tariffs, the removal of those taxes has already been going on. So CETA is already kind of happening, but it's not finished because in order to be fully in force, Every member state of the EU, including Ireland, has to ratify it. And at the moment, lots of them still haven't. Ireland's on that list. So it's already kind of working, you know, but it's not fully operational yet. And we have been kind of working on this for really a decade, it's fair to say. Is Ireland the only country slowing CETA down or taking issue with it? So it's fair to say that, you know, we're not the 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 outlier here. There's still a lot of work to be done in terms of getting EU states to put it through. And there has been controversy about 
the provisions of the treaty that aren't in operation yet. And that's really what we were discussing in the, the Irish case. This, you know, investor protection and investor courts provision that is the centre of the dispute in Ireland. That's something that lots of other EU member states have concerns about as well. OK, we'll, we'll get into that in a bit. But just you mentioned there, it depends on your politics and how you look at international trade deals. Um, the benefits are probably quite obvious from what you've talked about there and like, it, you know, the idea of making money and generating wealth and being able to use that then um, in countries in, in terms of welfare of their people. What are the main sticking points for those against this particular deal? Yeah, so I think that obviously the theory of the EU and the, the foundation it's built on is that trade is good. Trade is good for bringing us together, for building peace between countries and for making everyone better off. But people opposed to, uh, you know, very broad free trade and this agreement in particular would say there's a risk that trade deals make it harder to do certain things that we might want to do in our domestic sort of social politics, that it might make it harder to enact certain environmental or labour protections, because in the trade deal, we might agree to treating investors in a certain way. And in doing that, that might limit us from passing certain kinds of laws that might you know, advance particular interests. To, to take an example, Germany's been involved in a, a, a WTO dispute about its decision to wind down use of nuclear power after the Fukushima disaster in 2011. And because of various trade deals, Swedish investors had significant stake in German nuclear power. And they you know, took Germany basically to investment court, seeking billions and billions of euro in compensation for the fact that their nuclear investment was now worth less. And ultimately, Germany settled that case for almost three billion euro that they paid to the, the, the investors in question. And so some people would say, well, look, there a trade deal has tied your hands. There you have a situation where you signed up to trade and investor protection. And suddenly it's penalizing you if you decide that environmentally it's safer or better to do without nuclear power. Now, whatever the merits or, or demerits of nuclear power, the concern is that that choice has been made more difficult now for Germany because if they're looking at environmental measures or other measures in future, they now have to think, am I going to be punished under my trade deal for doing this? So that's some of the concerns that people have with deals like CETA. Yeah, so Costello and others have pointed that investor courts have been used to sue the Netherlands and Italy through the Energy Charter Treaty. Mm. What happened in those cases? Can you take us through? Yeah, so I should say I'm not a, an international trade lawyer. My specialty is, is Irish constitutional law. And I think that the, what I can say, because I don't want to, to speak in detail about instances that I don't have, um, you know, an expert knowledge of. But the concern is just like the German case, that basically in any situation where you have a treaty and, a, and an investor protection court, and, and again, this is something that CETA would set up. What can happen is that an individual investor can basically sue a state, saying the way that you've regulated your energy market, or the way you've regulated employment conditions, or the way you've regulated um, environmental protections, makes my investment less valuable, and therefore you're treating me unfairly under the terms of this treaty, and you have to to pay me money. The concern is that this creates, uh, and very much the, the fear with the, the Netherlands and the Italian case, that people look at, at cases like that and they say, well, we should be very careful about how we make laws. We should be really cautious anytime we engage in regulation of these fields. And 
Regulating is one of the most important things that the state does. It's the thing that protects us from people conducting business in potentially harmful ways. It's the way we advance our interests as a society. And so the concern is that trade deals like this can put investor and economic interests so far forward, protect them so strongly that some of those collective social interests might fall by the wayside, or that we might just be afraid to enact measures we think are good because we're worried about being fined basically billions and billions of euro for these laws and these decisions. So these investor courts, are these set up yet? You've said some of CETA is already kind of functioning, even though it hasn't been ratified in a lot of states. Are these investor courts something that's lagged behind or are they already set up? Yes, the investor protection bit of, of CETA as I understand it, isn't part of the provisional uh, enforcement. So a lot of the functional trade bits of CETA are already happening and have for some time, but parts of it need to be ratified by all of the EU member states in order to come into force. And this investor protection is one. So CETA provides for basically its own tribunal, its own little court system where 15 individuals will be uh, appointed, uh, five chosen by the Canadians, five chosen by the EU and five independent members that will basically serve as a court for CETA disputes. And that means that if this comes into force, if CETA is fully ratified and if this becomes uh, part of the law, then an investor who's unhappy with a decision that's Ar that Ireland's made that might have cost them money on their investment that they feel makes their investment less valuable will be able to take a case about that, not to any Irish or European court, but to this international, basically, investment tribunal set up just for CETA. And this idea of um, investor state arbitration tribunals, as they're called. This is becoming more and more common in big trade deals. And as a result, it's been attracting sort of more controversy. And really, this is the first time that Ireland has been asked to sign up to an agreement like this that would have a tribunal that would have this sort of power. And that was really the really one of the, the core of, of Patrick Costello's objections, that this is the first time we are giving this much authority and this much power to a court that really is exists totally outside of the, the state in this way, but could have such an effect potentially on Irish law and what we do in Ireland. Yeah, let's get into Patrick Costello's case now. You've said that one basis for it was the investor courts. What else did he say when he launched his case? Yeah, so I suppose it is important to distinguish two things, and, and Costello himself was very clear to distinguish this. One is the question of, is this agreement a good idea? And then there's the question of, was it being ratified the right way? So he was in his legal case very much leaving aside the question of whether or not this is a, a good idea in the first place. People might have different views on whether or not signing up to CETA is a good thing for Ireland and for the EU. But his case was really about if we are going to sign up to it, how are we going to do that? The way that was planned before this case was taken was that the Oireachtas would ratify the treaty. That's the standard process for an international treaty that Ireland would sign up to. It passes through the houses of the Oireachtas and it's, it's signed off on. And he suggested that really this treaty was so significant that mightn't be enough, that it wasn't a constitutionally acceptable procedure to authorise a treaty this significant in that way. And so his suggestion was that it might even require sort of a constitutional amendment, a referendum to ratify CETA, which would require a vote 
of the general public. So everyone would get a say on whether or not CETA should be ratified. So really the heart of the case is the ratification procedure and whether or not it can be done by the Oireachtas alone or whether or not it needs sort of a constitutional change. And to make that argument, he basically said CETA is such a significant treaty takes away some sovereignty from Ireland. And that is something you can only do with a constitutional change. You can't do that just by ratifying it in the Oireachtas. How long did it take to get to the Supreme Court? Because obviously you said it didn't take the usual route. Patrick Costello is a TD. He's a TD with the Green Party. So is it unusual, one, that a TD took a case like this? And then how long did it take? Yeah, so it's not totally unheard of. Uh, a similar case taken by Thomas Pringle, TD, in respect of the European Stability uh, uh, Mechanism, uh, the ESM Treaty, which was uh, around the time of the, the bailouts. And, and uh, he took a similar case. So it's not unknown. Um, it is unusual. And cases like this don't come up that often. When they do, they can be extremely important. So people might be familiar or know the name of the Crotty case. The Crotty case was decided in the 1980s. And it's the case that said for new European treaties, if they give away new powers to the European Union, the Irish people have to vote on them in a referendum. So that's one of the most significant cases of that sort. That's why we vote on any big new EU treaty changes in Ireland. We're the only member state that does that. Sometimes we vote twice. Yes, sometimes <laughs> we vote twice. And that's because of the Crotty case. So what Coslow was doing was taking a case of that sort. And there's very few of those. There's really only a handful of cases that have argued something like this. It didn't take as long as we thought because the Supreme Court gave special permission for what's called a leapfrog appeal. So usually if you take a case, you start in the High Court. And if you don't like the result, you have to appeal to the Court of Appeal. And then you have to ask really special permission to get the Supreme Court to hear it if you're unhappy with what the Court of Appeal tells you. But in really exceptional cases, the Supreme Court takes the case straight after the High Court. So this case actually was a little bit faster than we thought because the Supreme Court was so interested and thought the case was so important. It went straight from the High Court up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court also sat as seven judges. That's unusual. They don't do that every day. They only do it for the most important cases. So between the seven judge court and the leapfrog appeal, it was very clear to us that this case was going to be really important, that something very significant was at stake. I was going to say, is that an indication that actually they're going to say, hang on, lads, this can't just go through as normal? Like, you know, if the indications are there that they want to hear it, that all seven of them are going to be there. Should we have known really then that the, the judgment wouldn't be nothing to see here move on? Yeah, you can't be sure. I mean, sometimes the Supreme Court will put together seven judges, but in the end, they will say nothing to see here. What I suppose it says is that whatever the answer, the question is really important. So I think it was really even before the result of the case, the fact of the special leapfrog appeal, the fact of the seven judge court, which is unusual to, to for the Supreme Court to sit in a, in a panel that big. Those facts showed us that this case was of huge public importance. And even if they had said, actually, your arguments aren't correct and, and there is nothing to see here, you've asked a really important question that was worth asking. Uh, so I think it showed the case was really significant, even if the results hadn't been a significant one, even if they had said, actually, it's OK to ratify it. In the end, that's not what they said. And they said in a complicated way, there were problems with ratification. Yeah. So let's get into the rulings. There was two separate rulings, but let's look at the split one first. Mm. So what did the judges say in relation to whether the Constitution could uh, permit CETA to be ratified by the Oireachtas as was planned? Yeah. So 
the Supreme Court said you can't ratify CETA as it stands. And there's a but uh, at the end of that, which we'll come to. But Costello basically made two different types of argument in the case. He said the first problem is with this tribunal system. This tribunal system basically takes away what he called our juridical sovereignty, which you might call our ability to make sort of judicial decisions, to hear cases and resolve cases. And because CETA has this very unusual mechanism where people can go to this international tribunal, that tribunal can then award them huge amounts of compensation potentially. And and this was crucial. At the end of the day, that investor can go to the Irish courts and have that determination enforced against the government. So the government would have to pay over billions and billions. Um, That is, Costello argued, an infringement of our basically judicial sovereignty. It's taking power away from the courts. His second argument was that it's also kind of taking power away from the legislature, that CETA's rules are quite vague. The rules are things like treat investors fairly, treat them with equitable treatment. Those aren't very specific. What what does that mean? And he said that there is this, you know, joint committee of CETA. They get to decide, this international body, what CETA really means. So they get to decide what is fair to investors, what is equitable to investors. And in doing that, they're basically making law for Ireland because they're going to tell us what we can and can't do. And so he said it's also taking away the power of the Oireachtas because it's giving this power to CETA to decide how we can treat investors. And that's a power that should belong to the legislature. So those are his two big arguments. He won the first one. So he won the judicial power point that the power being given to the the courts, uh, the tribunal was too much. But he lost the second point. Only two judges of the seven agreed with him that the legislative power was sort of being given away. And so it it was a very significant victory in that way. And and we can talk more about the, the the reason that he won that judicial point. But he was mounting kind of two different arguments and he only won one of them. The courts weren't willing to accept that this was taking away the Irish government's power to regulate things. They said, we still have power to do that. CETA tries to protect that. And even though this committee gets to decide what fair means and what equitable means, it's fundamentally our decision on how we we regulate things. So they weren't satisfied that the power of our legislature was being taken away. But a majority of the court was convinced that the judicial power was being taken away. Their own power, if you're being flippant about it. You could say that. (laughs) They were certainly very concerned about that. And they were concerned about the way that the courts um, would be forced basically to automatically enforce any judgment that came from uh, a tribunal like this, that there was no point at which the Irish courts would get to say, well, hold on, this CETA tribunal judgment actually doesn't conform with fundamental values of Ireland and the Irish constitution. And there was no point they could say this seat of judgment even doesn't conform with EU values and the EU's, you know, highest laws and 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 values. And so because of that, they said this is basically like setting up a new highest level of court for certain types of cases. This is taking power from what currently belongs to the Irish courts and the Irish constitution gives that power 
exclusively to our courts. And it's giving them to this outside body, this body that is not a part of our legal system, isn't authorised by our constitution. And so four of the seven judges said that is unconstitutional because the Irish constitution protects the power of Irish courts to rule on these questions. And you can't give that power away to another body. Now, the three judges who disagreed said, well, even though it does give power to, to decide these matters to this international court, because it's international, it's not really about Irish law. You're just deciding things between investors and states. We signed up to this. We want to ratify it. It's not really interfering with the Irish judiciary. So there was a bit of a dispute on the court about whether or not the judicial power was really being given away. But on the Supreme Court, it's majority rules. And four of the judges did think that was problematic and unconstitutional, which meant that CETA couldn't be ratified as it currently stands, not possible. Yeah, so you mentioned there there was a but at the end. So they said, if it can't be ratified constitutionally, but we're giving you a, a solution. Yes, and this is a bit unusual. So the Supreme Court doesn't usually give you advice. It'll usually tell you if something is constitutional or unconstitutional when you're asked a specific question. But they're not usually in the habit of telling you how you could fix the problem. And quite unusually in this case, they sort of did do that. They made a suggestion for what the Oireachtas might do if they want to ratify CETA. It wasn't an instruction. They weren't saying this has to be done. It might be the decision of the Oireachtas not to do this or that a referendum should happen instead. But they said there might be a fix. And the fix is quite technical. The fix is that there is an act in Ireland, the Arbitration Act of 2010, that judgments of the CETA tribunal would be enforced under. If you want a CETA judgment enforced, you rely on this act. And at the moment, what happens is that judgments of that sort under the 2010 Act are enforced almost automatically, the court said. If you hold up a judgment like that to an Irish court, they have to help you get your money. And the court said that it would be possible for the legislature to change that Act and to say, maybe for seated judgments, the courts get to review the judgment and they get to say, this judgment conflicts with the fundamental values of Ireland, or this judgment conflicts with the fundamental values of the EU. So we'll refuse to recognise this particular CETA award because it goes too far and, and violates our highest ideals or something like that. And the court said six votes to one. So lots of them in favour of this solution. They said if that were done, then it would be constitutional to ratify CETA. So if the judgments from the, the International Tribunal weren't immediately automatically enforceable, if there was some opportunity for an Irish judge to look at it and say, no, that's not appropriate to enforce, then that problem of giving away our judicial sovereignty would kind of disappear. So that was the proposed solution. And the government has indicated their plan is to try and pursue that solution. And if they did that, the majority of the Supreme Court thinks the problem is solved and therefore you don't have to have a referendum in order to ratify CETA. So it's still open to the government and the Oireachtas to ratify CETA without a vote if they take this route. Now, one judge really disagreed with that, Judge Charlton. He said, 
I don't think that's possible under CETA. You're basically doing something that CETA didn't intend. CETA wants automatic enforcement. This is not something you can do. Now, I'm not enough of an expert on international trade law. It was to going know to be my next true. question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't give a comment on that, but that's really interesting. Six of the judges thought it was OK, but one really disagreed. And that raises the question, not so much will this go back to the Supreme Court, because I, I think that's unlikely. The court's been fairly clear that it thinks from a constitutional standpoint, this is OK. The question might be if the government tries to do this, Will they get pushback from the EU or from from Canada that this is not what we agreed to? You're you're doing something different here. That the deal um, expects automatic enforcement of these CETA awards. So the real pushback on that might not come from the Irish courts. It might come from you know the international sphere. Yeah. What has the EU reaction to these rulings been? As far as I'm aware, no uh, official reaction. The EU would not be in the habit of commenting on these things publicly. What the EU would likely say would be it is up to Ireland to ratify CETA in accordance with its national law. And we look forward to Ireland doing that. So really, it will be kicked to the government to find a, a fix to this. I'm sure behind the scenes, the EU has, you know, strong views on, on what should be done. And in particular, it'll be important, I'm sure, for the government to engage with the EU to make sure that whatever we plan to do, if we plan to move ahead with ratifying it in this way, changing the Arbitration Act and then putting it through the Oireachtas, we'll have to make sure the EU and the Canadians think that that's sufficient. So yeah. there'll be a lot of talks behind the scenes, I would think. I made a joke earlier that we have voted twice in some European referendums, but people will probably be listening to this wondering, how is this different to, say, Nice or Lisbon or the Fiscal Stability Treaty? Like, should we not just be holding a referendum and voting on it? Yeah, so the, the basic rule comes from that Crotty case that I, I talked about earlier, where a big European treaty, the Single European Act, had to be put to referendum. And as a result, every big European treaty since then, has been put to referendum. But that doesn't mean every single treaty has to be. We sign up to lots of treaties all the time that are no problem in terms of our constitution. The difference is when the treaty gives away new powers, gives powers from our legislature or our government or our courts to some other group. Right. So that's what pushes the treaty over the line from something you can do without a referendum to something that requires a referendum and a constitutional change. If you want to give away powers that were previously held by some branch of the Irish government and give them to an international body, that requires a constitutional change. And so that was the core of the case here is these powers were giving to this tribunal. Does that go so far as to give away a power to an international body? And the court said, yes, but if you change the law, maybe no. And so whether or not people feel we should vote on this, again, comes down to a matter of politics. Do you think these are things that should be negotiated by governments and, you know, really they're so complicated and so multifaceted, it's very hard to explain them to people in order to let people vote on them because there's so much going on with CETA. Others would say it's really important that people get the opportunity to, to express their opinions and that CETA is a very major international agreement like some of the other ones we voted on over the years. So whether or not you think it's important that we have a vote probably depends on uh, you know, how much 
power you think CETA is giving away, and also more broadly, whether or not you think it's sort of a, a good thing that we vote on these agreements. We are unusual in, let's say, voting on EU treaties. And you might think we're unusual in a really good way because we're one of the only EU member states that gives our citizens a say in if we adopt a new EU treaty. But some people would say these treaties are very hard to understand. They're very hard to explain to voters. They weren't written to be voted on. And so we really face a challenge when we're putting a treaty like this to a vote, we have to be able to explain it in a, in a balanced way so that people can make an informed decision. And it really is challenging. So I can understand why the government wants to avoid having a referendum on it. But it really does now, I think, raise a question of, given the Supreme Court has raised these concerns, um, we should have, at the very least, a, a strong debate in the Oireachtas uh, about this and have our representatives give some serious thought to whether or not this is the right way to to make the decision of whether or not CETA is a good treaty for Ireland. Yeah, and even if it is ratified, can, do the challenges stop then? Is it kind of a fait accompli if they do change the 2010 Arbitration Act and do ratify it? Um, are we are we done then? I would think so, yeah. I mean, in, in theory, you could always go back to the Supreme Court and make a, a, a different argument or, or, or try another way. But it would seem to me the majority of the court was fairly clear that this mode of ratification they've suggested, change the act and then pass it through the Oireachtas, that will do from an Irish constitutional law point of view. And then in terms of Ireland's ratification of CETA, that would be a fait accompli. Obviously, there's still ratification in other European countries to watch out for. And um, there may be fights in other places about whether or not CETA is a, is a good deal to sign up to. But we are still seeing some of the, I guess, the benefits of CETA happening now. Like there's a lot of trade happening right now with the rules of CETA, but it hasn't been ratified, which is just another element of confusion in the whole thing. Right. So we're already getting the trade bits that that um, we're told we should want from this. But the agreement does expect that it will be ratified. It comes into force before it's fully operational, right, to let people, you know, do this process of ratification. But the agreement is a whole thing. And so if EU member states refuse to ratify it, then we might have to go back to the drawing board and see whether or not there is another version of a trade agreement without some of these investor courts or, or investor protections that we could agree with Canada, because it is certainly expected that EU states will ratify in the appropriate way. And if we don't do that, we expect the agreement won't last forever. Thank you so much. Obviously, a lot to keep an eye on. And we may have you back ahead of a referendum, I think, to talk about this. Thanks so much, David, for coming in and explaining all of that to us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And a big thank you to David for making the time to come see us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Eva Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.